your priorities have to match up with your actions. If you work 80 hours a week and you say you're doing it for your family, are you? Because I'm sure they'd rather have you. I'm sure they'd rather have time with you. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I'm not judging. I'm that guy too, right? So all I'm saying is you have to be honest with yourself about how you want to spend your time. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. All right, well, welcome everybody into Contrarian Cashflow. I've got John Kasman here today with me. John, how are you doing? Hey, I'm great, John. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you and your guests or your audience today. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. So, well, for those that don't know John, he's a master marketer, multifamily investor, and of course, above all else, a loving father and husband. So, John, what are you working on right now? Well, I mean, we have a couple of deals in the pipeline that we're working on. Outside of that, we are always looking to grow our network. I think it's really important to try to reach as many people as you can, educate them about who you are, what you do, how you help people and grow the business. Um, like you, I'm a, I'm a father, as you mentioned. And, you know, for us, it's really about trying to create the memories today, you know, having that time with our loved ones, our kids, you know, my wife, and just appreciating the day, you know, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And uh, we got to take advantage of the time we have. So just trying to, you know, be conscious of that with all the decisions that we make, providing us with some flexibility and uh, creating a lifestyle that we want. Yeah, man. No, absolutely. Nothing more important than your time, right? Or valuable. So uh, well, so what, what are you doing to stay sane during COVID right now? I mean, it's a tough time for everybody. What are you doing with the family or whatever to, to stay uh, a little bit normal? Well, you know, a couple of things, you know, one of the things for us is, um, you know, we like, I have two little boys, so I have six and a four-year-old. So for them... Um, they need routine, you know, they need some, some, some balance and some structure in their life. So we kind of have ways to, to make some days more interesting and look forward to the next day. So we have a couple of days of the week, we do something a little fun. So in this household, Taco Tuesday is honored and has been honored for at least a year straight. So That's every awesome. Tuesday night we do Taco Tuesdays and usually my, my sister-in-law will come over and we'll all get together and, and do tacos. So, you know, it's a fun thing. I ask the kids, what's, what's today? And they, they yell out, Taco Tuesday. So uh, that's always fun. And then uh, we do Donuts with Dad on Friday. So Friday morning uh, before school, I will get them out. I'll take them to a local donut place. We'll grab some donuts, we'll eat, and then I'll drop them off to school. So try to have a couple of things that they can look forward to each week and keep things going. And outside of that, for me, it's really about, you know, trying to keep my own routines together. So uh, I have a routine where I try to do my affirmations in the morning, get in a workout, and make sure I go through my daily goals, the things I want to accomplish for the week. And, um, you know, toward, at the end of every night, try to review my, those goals as well as at the end of each week, reflect back on what we what we did, any areas that we weren't able to achieve, and then plan the next week coming up. So that kind of helps me stay focused. And being conscious of that too, man, I think the problem most people are having with COVID is you feel limited and restrained. And for me, it's, you know, it's like the friends and family and, and the networking I've put on hold for the most part. Haven't seen a lot of our friends and family for for those reasons. Um, so just trying to find ways to take that personal time, be conscious of it. You know, maybe having a, a Zoom or a FaceTime chat with a, a loved one, and uh, getting out of the house where we can. You know, if we go hit some golf balls or, or something else where it, you can distance a little bit and try to keep everybody safe, which I do that too. 
Man, some parenting and self-development nuggets right at the beginning here. So no, I love that. Those are some great strategies. So, well, you know, I, I just love your story. I, I, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on. Like I said, you're, you've got a multitude of different skill sets and wear a bunch of different hats. So how did you get to where you are today from, you know, being this corporate Mark, you know, outstanding marketer to now you've got your own business, you're doing multifamily investing. So what, what was that journey like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, like a lot of your listeners, you know, when I was starting out, I was told, you know, the, the path to success was to get a good job. You know, well, well, first of all, go to college, graduate, get a good job, work that job until you retire, and then you can go off and live a wild adventure, right? And for me, I'm the first one in my family to, to graduate, go to college and graduate from college. So I spent a lot of my formative years trying to figure out what success actually looked like in my head, right? Because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have someone breathing down my neck telling me you have to do it this way. There were a lot of options for me. But I saw that as the the path that I was supposed to take. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad like a lot of people, and that really opened up my eyes to the way money actually works, you know, the way business income is and investment income and things like that. So fast forward, I loved marketing. You know, one of the things in that book that stood out, everyone always talks about the money aspect, but one of the things that really jumped out to me in the book was you should work a job to develop a skill. And once you've developed that skill, you should move on. And that probably, I mean, even more than the money stuff, that probably stuck with me more than anything else. And he talked about, I think there was a zipper company or something like that he worked for. And, you know, he did sales and marketing there and he developed that skills and then he moved on to something else. I knew I wanted to get into marketing because I felt that if you could attract clients and attract business, then you could do anything. You know, if you could learn how to communicate a product or a service, then you can create any business. So I was also really intrigued by communications. I took a class in in, uh, high school and it was so basic, but so mind blowing. And I'll give you one if you're you're around my age. So I'll ask you this, you know, back in the day before cable really jumped onto the screen, you had a handful of media outlets, right? You had ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, PBS, right? And my teacher said, why do you think you get these channels? And why do you think you're able to watch these shows for free? And I'm like, oh, I'm like, so so they could, you know, they can talk to us and share us information if they need to. Who is they? And I was like, the government? <laughs> and he's like, try advertisers. And I was like, what? And he's, he broke it down about how it works and who actually pays for it. And that helped me just really understand the ecosystem of you have these free platforms, but an advertiser is paying for it so they can get in front of an audience so they can sell a product. And uh, I was just intrigued. You know, I, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to understand it. So that led me down the pathway of advertising and marketing. So um, that's one fast thing that I struggle with too, is just around yeah. the marketing aspect is especially from a personal branding. And again, one of the reasons I was excited to get you on is I'm a sales guy. And that's one of the things I'm getting more and more used to is around the marketing aspect and you just the personal branding and, and things of that sort. And so to your point, the fact that you were able to have a scenario that resonated with you at such a young age, and like you said, with marketing, you're attracting people to you and, and the likes that you want. Whereas at sales, for the most part, I'm always out there hunting, you know? So as soon as I get a, a scenario, a customer or a deal, I have to move on to the next one because that one's done. And so now I'm personally on a journey around marketing and getting better at that. Hey, how do I work smarter, not harder around getting passive and incoming leads versus everything being outbound. I think that's tremendous. 
Yeah. And they work hand in hand together. Right. So, I mean, you have to take advantage of the leads that you're giving. You know, if you don't take advantage of leads, reach out to them, talk to them and, and engage with them, then, you know, you all the marketing in the world is not going to result in a sell if you're not ready to to close that lead. I mean, you you have a great TV spot. Someone walks into the store to buy your product and you don't have it on the shelf or, you know, the salesman can't you know, get the consumer what they're looking for, it really won't matter, right? So you still have to have all those components together. Marketing is really the lead generation piece, though. What it does is it sparks interest. It conveys the product or service benefit to get someone interested. The sales is really there to take over. And, and the big difference, like you said, is there's inbound marketing and there's outbound marketing. Outbound is you picking up the phone, you call in every person who owns a, a property um, on your list. It's all of those different things. Inbound marketing is when you have the ability to have your phone ring with people who are interested in your product or service. So if you can focus on inbound marketing, you're going to be more effective. You're going to save more time. You are are dealing with people who have raised their hands saying, yes, I'm interested. Please help me. Teach me how your product can help. Versus outbound marketing, you may get the phone, you know, you might get a couple clicks, you know, you might get people telling you to stop bugging them and all those different things. So just a little bit of a different approach. But if you want to create something that's sustainable and efficient, you really need to focus on your inbound marketing tactics. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously, okay, so this is how you got into the realm of marketing and and how it's important to you. And so got out of college. What was that progression like? What got you into the corporate world and, and down that path? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really thought it was, again, I probably should have done a better job of getting mentors as a young person, but I had a lot of will. So I had a strong willpower to just figure stuff out. So at that time, I realized kind of late that I really needed to get an internship. And I tried to call companies to, to get hired when I was going to graduate. And they're like, well, do you have any experience? I'm like, no. How do you get experience? They're like, we need to get an internship. I'm like, oh, crap. So I literally went to the library. I spent 10 hours in the library. I had a really nice librarian who helped me. And I told her I needed to find an internship, a marketing internship. So I sat down. She logged me into the system. We looked at every marketing internship in the United States. I went through about, nine, I think there were like 94 internships and there was one that kept popping up. So that one, I focused my efforts saying, I'm going to apply all my energy to this one first. And if that doesn't go through, I'll move to the next ones. I ended up getting that internship. It was for a, a job out in Detroit, working for a marketing agency. So I got that. That basically was the last time I interviewed for a job. That's awesome. That's awesome. I that's that's you grinding, though. I mean, you sit down I mean, to, <laughs> to put that effort forth. I mean, that's awesome. I think that's something sometimes people look past is is what actually leads to success, right? So I mean, if you didn't actually take the time and sit down and and put in the effort to to get that that internship, right? I mean, that's tremendous. So that, that's the stuff that I really want to encompass. So for those of you who can watch this or see this, I'm holding up a book right now. It's How to Sell Yourself by Jill Gerard. And I read this book my senior year in college. And this book is from the world's greatest salesman. That's what he says in quotes. And um, this book really helped me from a mindset standpoint to, your, to what you're saying. And in short, there's a story in the book where he talks about a guy who was trying to get a job. And I think he was like working on... Um, a deck or something like that, or a doc. The short story is the guy showed up every week. They told him there were no jobs. Every week he show up, there are no jobs. After about nine weeks, he tell, and a lot of people show up, but they tell him, hey, they got no jobs. And he said, you, you come here. And they said, you've been here every week. I keep telling you there's no jobs. And you keep showing up. And he's like, I'm going to keep showing up until you tell me there is a job. 
and he hired him on the spot, right? And it's that kind of thing. So for me as a young person, I always had that initiative because I always felt too like I couldn't fail. Not yeah. because I was, um, you know, insulated from failure, but just I was going to work too hard. I was not going to let failure happen. I was either going to learn or I was going to develop. So the first like real time I had to go out and really compete, I was willing to put in that kind of work. You know, when I did uh, my first job out of college, I created even my thank you card, man. I created a character for my my thank you card and I put the card in this pot holder. I don't know if you remember the Arby's campaign. They used to have a little oven mitt that was running around. Well, yeah. I couldn't find an oven mitt. So I found a, a red pot holder. I coat a face on it. It looked just like the, the oven mitt. I gave him a backstory and I put the, the card in the oven mitt and I mailed it to the woman who interviewed me. And uh, they were going to hire me anyway, but she got that one. It was like, this dude clearly is above and beyond the, the competition, right? But it's just, how that do you That just seems like out? that's a long time ago though, too. You know, I mean, that's like, I feel like a lot of people are trying to differentiate themselves today with, with strategies like that. So, I mean, the fact that you were doing that, you know, years ago, right out of college, I mean, that's tremendous. I mean, your, your mind, obviously, like you said, you're working on your mindset. So obviously your mind just kind of was to the point where to your, to the book you were just recommending selling yourself constantly, you know, how do I, how do I present myself so that they say we have no choice, but to hire John because he's the best, not only he's the best candidate, but he's also giving us the most as far as ancillary benefits of his creativity. So that that's awesome, man. That's, that's a great story. Yeah, man. I mean, listen, I was extremely hungry, as you can you can tell from the stories. And I wanted to make sure that that hunger came through. And at a minimum, if you hired me as like, well, the kid was hungry, right? You, like there's a 50-50 shot. He's actually smarter, can do it. But that hunger, you can't teach. You know, you right. can teach someone how to do different things. You can't teach them passion. You can't teach them hunger. You can't teach them dedication. So if I can show up to the table with those skills, then they can t- they can mold me into their way of doing business. So, I mean, I felt like that gave me a chance to stand out. And in all truthfulness, that literally was the last time I ever interviewed. Every job I've had since then was essentially a job that was handed to me based on a previous relationship there. So I went from there, I actually went home to, to focus on the family business I was doing, the, in- the place I interned at. They called me every month. Um, they called me every month for a year. And then finally, after the 13th time they called me, I said, you know what? I am interested. It's about time now to, to do something else. They flew me out. I had an interview. And, I mean, listen, I interviewed formally, but I never applied is what I should say. I interviewed. Yeah. I never applied for a job. Yeah. So they flew me out. I interviewed with a handful of folks. I got this other job. That was a fellowship program. General Motors was one of my clients through that fellowship program. In that program, I went to Chicago. While I was in Chicago, the program was wrapping up. I got a call from one of my friends who was at who was working with General Motors. They said, hey, the, your old client got promoted and they're looking for a backfill. Your name came up. They would love to interview you for the job. And they flew me out to Detroit, interview for the job, got the job. And again, it just, it always happened like that as far as the career stuff, you know, it's just, awesome. you make an impression on people. If, and when there's an opportunity, you know, people wanted to bring me along because they knew I could add value to them and their team. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, so you're Midwest through and through. So you're Chicago, Cincinnati, Detroit. I mean, so you got the whole Midwest swing going on. That's right. But Cleveland is home. Make sure it's clear. (laughs) Cleveland is, I'm born and raised in Cleveland. I live in Cincinnati, but Cleveland is where my heart is. Nice, nice. Cleveland rocks. Yeah, we know that. So, um, so, so, okay. So you've got this, this job at GM. So now, but so now you're obviously out of that realm. So what was, what spawned kind of the transition from working for such a large, you know, global employer to, to kind of taking a step back and looking to do something different? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to share the earlier story because I wanted you to understand the passion and the focus and energy that I had as a, you know, a recent college grad trying to break into corporate America, the success. I mean, at General Motors, I was doing stuff working with the Pontiac brand. We're working with musicians, 50 Cent, Pussycat Dolls. We were doing stuff with Maxim. You know, we we're doing stuff with NCAA video games. I was working with, you know, Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler and all these guys, right? So we're doing super cool stuff for a 25, 26 year old marketing executive, right? So, I'm on top of the world and it's in a lot of uh, a lot of regards from a corporate standpoint, right? I'm doing really well. I see my path to success and bankruptcy starts to come around, right? So this is GM. This is 2007, 2008, 2009. So we start, you know, falling off from a financial standpoint, we run into some financial issues. And what it forced me to do was to really reflect on the goals that I had set for myself the path that I was on and where my next step was. Like anybody in this time, if you are on, you know, working your job, you're young in your career and you're watching your company get dragged through the mud from a media standpoint, you are watching all the hard work that you've put into your career essentially start to get slandered, right? I mean, this is at the time where I felt like that blue bug, the GM name was going to be a hindrance on my resume because no one wanted to hire a guy who was the marketing person there. So as I looked to start applying for the jobs, just to make sure I had some options, guess what? I wasn't getting callbacks. Yeah. And I could only liken this to if you were a financial executive and you worked at Enron, you know, and, and I'm being a bit over the top dramatic, but picture that picture. You were a great financial, you know, accountant or whatever you work for Enron and you're going to try to go apply. I mean, that's what I felt like. And it wasn't that bad, but I'm like, I have to get off this sinking ship. Yep. And as I looked around my bosses, my colleagues, there was a fear that was abundant. You could cut the room with, it, it was just tension. And every day you walked into that environment and it was draining. And again, as a younger professional, I felt like, well, I've only dedicated 18 months to this. Like I can go and pivot and do something else. There are people who have been here for 20 years. You know, this is who they are. Like they don't really have as many options. And I distinctly remember, you know, when it was formalized, we were going into bankruptcy. That actually removed a lot of tension because we at least now had a plan. We had some clarity. I didn't have to keep watching the news to figure out what in the heck was going on. But we also had to go through another round of layoffs. And I was told that I was safe not to worry about it. But I remember going into work that day a little bit late because I didn't want to see it or, yeah. you know, be a part of it. And I got into the office. It was very quiet, eerily quiet that morning because everybody else apparently came in late, too. And I came in like kind of late. They came in super late. <laughs> so I get to my desk. No one's in my aisle. And there's a red light blinking on my phone. And there's a voice message and no one leaves voicemails, right? So my heart stops pound, starts pounding. I'm like, man, they're going to fire me. They didn't have the guts to tell me and truthfully say it yesterday. He told me not to worry about it. He could have just gave me some corporate BS line. He told me not to worry about it. So my heart starts pounding. I look at the red light for like 20 seconds. Finally, I, I pick it up. I'm like, look, if, if it is what it is, nothing I can do about it. You know, I know yep. I bust my tail here whatever. I listen to the voicemail. It's one of my colleagues. And he's been with the company 24 years. He is diabetic. He has no idea he's going to pay for his, his medicine that he needs. And he is heartbroken and he feels betrayed by the company that they are letting him go. And uh, I had empathy for him because I can only imagine what that must be like for you to dedicate yourself. And I, I looked to my own father who had worked two companies in his entire life. And that was not by his choice. He would have stayed at the one company for his entire career if he could have. And um, 
I can imagine that mindset and the kind of folks who are, are looking for that stability. And that's why you go for it, a big company, right? And uh, so I understood that. But the other piece that came over me was um, a sense of empowerment that I never wanted to be in that position where, you know, I had no idea how I was going to take care of my medicine or, you know, my basic survival skills. And, you know, I didn't want my family to be in that situation. And even though I wasn't married at the time, I just, I, I did not want to be in that situation. So that was the last moment where I reverted back to rich dad, poor dad. I re- remember the principles that he talks about in that book. And I made it a priority to take the income I was making from my day job, put it into investments that could pay me and then start to really build, um, a, you know, really a diversified portfolio, um, an income producing portfolio, not just retirement savings, but a portfolio of income that's coming in from different angles. So if at any point I wanted to quit or leave my job or I got fired, I wasn't sitting there worried about how I was going to pay my bills. So that was really critical for me. And that ultimately spawned me into real estate investing and building my own personal portfolio before transitioning into apartment syndication, working with other investors. That's, that's so, that's so important. And I think for me, a big part of that is, I mean, this is during, you know, the great recession, right? I mean, that's one of the greatest financial crises since, since the great depression. And so, you know, if that were not to happen, you know, if that, that mindset shift may not have occurred, right? So it's, you know, we look at these scenarios, and especially equating it to, to modern day with COVID going on right now, you know, what are these positives we can take from this circumstance that we can use to move us forward? And I think that's one of the things I'm seeing from, from friends and, and family that I know that have jobs that you never thought would be a challenge, right? A doctor. I mean, I have a friend that his wife's an, an, a, a physician, and she is getting furloughed because, and she's a general practitioner, and she's getting furloughed because they don't want, and they don't want so many patients coming in, right? And, and like dentists, I mean, so people that have these top-notch jobs are struggling with the same, you know, kind of challenges that you're talking about there from, from, from the great financial crisis from before. And so I think for me, that's just such an important part of it to say, you've got to insulate yourself. You've got to build this overarching you know, ability to create income outside of just one stream, regardless if it's a W-2 job, if it's a business that you own, or if it's investments, if you're relying solely on any of those, that's just a single point failure. You know, there's going to be a day in time that comes that, you know, that there's going to be a reckoning and that's going to stop or subside to a, to a, to a degree. So, um, let's, let's dig in on the, the, and John, just if if, if I can real quick, I, I think to that point, especially for those people who worked so hard. You know, if you've worked really hard to get to where you're at today, you then have to go into defense mode. You know, what? Will ha- how, how can I lose this? What would happen? What would it take for me to lose what I've earned? And that's what started to go through my head. You know, even though I hadn't accumulated a huge amount of wealth at that point, all of those hours and through college and sacrificing and the internships and building this marketing career and doing, going the extra mile, was running through my head is like, man, at any moment, this can be wiped out. And, and I saw it not so much in me because I was a junior person, a junior executive, but I looked at my bosses and one of them got shipped to Shanghai. You know, she, she wow. you know, had teenage kids. She came from California. They moved her to Shanghai. The other one got forced into early retirement. You know, another one got demoted. I just started to look like, man, these people don't have power over their own careers where they live, you know, some of the, some of the basic things that we want to control, um, your income, how much you make. And it's like, dude, you work so hard for this and for someone else to be able to take that away. That's where it really it clicked. And I would say just, I think for anything with COVID, it should show us that there is no such thing as recession proof, right? There's recession resistant, 
But, you know, sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's something else. You just get pushed out. You're not someone's guy. If you work in corporate America, if you're not someone's guy or girl, they just don't like you or you're too close to someone else. That could be a wrap for you. And it's just so you got to just keep these things in mind. You know, sometimes it's not really about how good you are, how hard you work. It's just the circumstances of things. You just don't want to be the person, you know, stuck holding the bag when the music stops playing, you know, figure out how do you create some other streams of income so you can continue to take care of your family and make the decisions that are best for you and yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those are tremendous points. So, so what started you down the path of real estate? Obviously, there's you know a multitude of different investment vehicles you could have chosen. So, so why why real estate? You mentioned rich dad poor dad, so I'm sure that had a little bit of an influence on it. But but why real estate? It had a lot. So I mean, for me, I, I didn't know a lot of people who invested. You know, honestly, I mean, certainly people who had stocks and maybe you know 401ks and things like that. But I did not grow up around investors. So for me, when I went to think about how to start investing. Real estate was the one thing that was at least somewhat familiar in the sense that I remember being a renter as a kid, you know, my mom paying rent and watching her bust her tail to come up with the rent money to get to some guy. So I recall that. And I said, man, I'd love to be on the other side of this equation. I just started to pay attention to what I was paying in rent, you know, and I'm like, all right, like I, I lived at this complex. and I think my rent was like 800 bucks. I just started calculating. I'm like, there are 152 units here in this complex, 800 bucks a month. And I was like, damn, they're making pretty good money here. And um, I said, it would be really nice to be on the other side of, of this equation, right? Um, Rich Dad Poor Dad opened up my eyes. It wasn't that book as much as it was the ABCs of Real Estate, which I read shortly thereafter by uh, Ken McElroy. And Ken talks about, you know, your first deal could be a hundred unit, which I, at the time I was like, dude, you are smoking crack because <laughs> ain't nobody going to go out there and buy a hundred units as their first deal. Right. Yep. And he doesn't talk about syndication and things like that in the book, but he just throws it out there. And I'm like, this dude's crazy, but let's go get this. Let's go get this two unit. I think I could do a two unit for my first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so for me, it made sense. You know, I, like I started to go to um, real estate investor association groups, start to read more. And as I started to get more and more comfortable, that just made sense. Stocks, I didn't get. I tried to read, learn about stocks. Um, I, I tried to read, you know, Peter Lynch's books and things like that. It was just too complex for me. You know, real estate was fairly straightforward. I thought the stock game, shorts, I was just confused. It was too much for me. Um, so with real estate, I knew people needed a place to live. I felt like with my market research, I would have a good ability to at least identify places where people wanted to go. And at a minimum, I needed a place to live. So if I bought where I wanted to live, I could probably attract similar like-minded individuals. So we bought a two, I moved from Detroit to Chicago um, and went to the agency side of things, working on other clients. And at that time, I, I bought a two-unit building with my wife and we lived in one unit, we rented out the other unit. That went extremely well for us. And so well, in fact, that we decided to do it again. We bought a three unit. This time we just bought it straight out and rented it. And that went well. We refinanced the first property. We were able to pull out six figures in a line of credit equity. And that went from, okay, this is a good way to invest to, oh, this works. Like that's this some stacks. is a yeah, that's some money right to, there. This is a great way to build real wealth, right? This is how you actually change the trajectory of your income and elevate your finances. So when we did that, I bought an eight unit building and I bought that eight unit building for two reasons. One, it was a good deal, but I really bought it because I wanted experience in commercial. I wanted to get up to five plus units to have experience in commercial. 
And then two, I wanted to manage a property management company or a property manager because I wanted to build that experience. As At that point, I had made a conscious decision to say, I'm going to start working up to build buying larger apartments. And I want to build a strong foundation to at least know, learn some of the stuff I may not know since I've been self-managing up to this point. I wanted to have that experience. So I felt more comfortable, confident, and competent going out there trying to acquire these larger properties. So for so that I think that's a question that I have and I think a lot of people run into is so you talk about Ken McElroy or you talk about you know some of these folks saying hey you know 100 units 150 200 units is their first deal or like you talked about you bought a duplex you bought a triplex and then you moved your way up to an 8 unit so what was your experience and would you change anything from kind of going through the progression that you did versus just jumping off the deep end and and going into that 100 unit deal Yeah absolutely so first and foremost you know I think for me, I wouldn't change too much of what I've done knowing what I knew at the time. Okay. And for me, it was practical. I I needed to learn it, believe in it, have confidence in it for me to move forward. Uh, again, I didn't know people who invested in real estate. So for me, anytime I met, like physically met a real real estate investor, it was like Christmas. You know, I wanted to learn everything about them, know what they did. And I don't care if it was just a house. I, if I met you and you actually owned a piece of property that you rented out, I was like, you got to tell me more. How did you do it? What'd you do? And that's how I was. I was like a little kid who was just discovering something for the first time. So starting out, I just had kind of this insatiable interest in investing. And I don't think I would have been able to just you know invest passively or whatever at that time. So my path and doing those first couple of deals, it was really solidifying that this was real. You know, I just, I didn't, I didn't know. And I was, I guess, a little scared and concerned that, Hey, maybe this, maybe there's something that people are missing out. Maybe there's something that, you know, I'm just missing. I read a ton of books. I got a bookshelf full of, you know, real estate investing books. I've been at a ton of meetings. I've listened to so many podcasts, you know, all of that stuff, right. I educated myself as much as I could, but you got to get to a point where you got to pull the trigger, you know, and I would say get about 80, 85% there on the confidence with your education. You got to pull the trigger, you know, the the last 15 to 20%, you have to learn yourself from reality, not from a book. So get yourself there and go. What I'll say about, you know, Ken's statement about, you know, getting to a hundred units in today, in today's world, if I were starting today, I actually would go that route. And I would even say in the last three to five years, I would go that route. And the reason is this. No one's talking about apartment syndication pre-2012. Okay. I didn't know about it. I I never heard the term. I I didn't hear the term for the first time until 2016. Yep. So I didn't know it was an option. You know what I mean? Like, like, did not know it existed, did not know it was an option. Um, I just assumed that these were very wealthy people who were buying these apartments. And that's just what it was. And I didn't know that everyday people can get together, pull their resources together and go out and acquire these assets. Just had no idea that this was happening, that this was a thing. So in today's world, that's a great way to get into it because you don't have the burden of being the operator, the asset manager, the property manager. You don't have the burden of executing you know, you can partner and align with a group that will take on those things. You can learn, you can continue to educate yourself, but you're getting paid to learn. You know, you're earning while you're learning. And if you can do that, now you've put yourself in a position where you're going to be very engaged because your money's on the line. So you're going to ask all the questions you want to ask, right? Yep. You're going to analyze these deals with a, a bit more scrutiny 
then if I just ask you, you know, uh, kind of passingly, if you're interested, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But if I'm telling you put up a hundred thousand dollars, you're like, wait a minute. So what's the uh, occupancy rate on this property again? You know, your questions get way more intelligent at that point. It's real. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the best way to get into it. And you also minimize your risk, right? You minimize your downside by getting into a deal like this, because as the name implies, you are a limited partner. So you only have so much capital risk. And most of the time you're buying a deal that is cash flowing day one anyway. And you have the ability to, you know, not only get those cash flows, but also boost the return. So now it's just a matter of understanding the business plan and identifying where the risk is and making sure that this is, you know, appropriately adjusted for risk um, with the, the investment. So if you can do that, I think that's a great way to get started. And if you also want to build a small portfolio or something like that, great. It also comes down to your time commitment though. If you have the time, if you have you know nothing but free time, by all means, build your own portfolio. If that's what your passion is, if that's what you really want to do. But if you are a busy professional, you know, you've got a, a demanding job, you have a family, you've got kids, especially young kids, you know, you have other passions, you love playing golf, you love hanging out with your friends, hiking, camping, whatever. Why would you sacrifice the things that we love to do to go work a second job. That's essentially what you're doing. You're signing up for a second job. We can call it investment. We can call it whatever makes you feel good, but it's a second job. You know, you just have equity at the second job. Now, why would you sacrifice the time that you have today for a second job? And I'll tell you where this became clear to me. My oldest son was like two at the time. So we had just him. So Saturday at a unit turn in my three unit building. And I went El Cheapo and said, oh man, I got a quote to paint. It was like eight, it was like a thousand dollars. I'm like, I ain't paying you a thousand dollars to paint this property, this unit. I'll paint it myself. So I bought the paint, paintbrush, all that stuff. My materials was like, you know, a hundred bucks. I spent seven hours at that unit between prepping the walls, you know, sanding the walls, washing walls, lining them up for the trim, painting the, the walls, painting the trim, seven hours total. My wife took my son to the park. They did lunch together. They did dinner together. I missed this moment with my son. The thing, the reason I work, by the way, right? The, the reason I, t- this is my why. I do all yeah. this with my family, so I say. Yet I'm here busting my ass, painting walls, while my family is figuring out why daddy is, you know, not here, right? Absolutely. And you have to reconcile that, man. Your 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 priorities have to match up with your actions. If you work 80 hours a week and you say you're doing it for your family, are you? Because I'm sure they'd rather have you. I'm sure they'd rather have time with you. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I'm not judging. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy too, right? So all I'm saying is you have to be honest with yourself about how you want to spend your time. And if your goal is, hey, I want to stack as much money as I can to prepare my family for the future, that's completely fine. If it's, hey, I want to spend as much quality time with my family today because I don't know what we're going to have in the future, but I also want to put my money to work so that we're continuing to invest in that and have a long-term vision as well. That's great too. All I'm saying is think about how you're actually spending your time, how you're actually spending your money, and do your actions match up with what you say are your real priorities. That's such an important point. And I think for me, I've gotten stuck on that myself. And I think a lot of people have a challenge with defining what they think is important to them and then actually following through with the actions. So, I mean, I think your analogy right there of when you were, you know, doing that work 
I think we've all been there. Anyone that's done a project, you know, I've definitely had plenty of Saturdays that I've been out on project sites doing stuff that, you know, could have been handled by somebody else. But, you know, I'm like, this is what I want to do. Or this is kind of my, you know, this is my penance for, for learning and trying to get into the game, uh, you know, what have you. But to your point, I think it's just so important to make sure that the actions you're taking are aligning with, with your why and why and what you're doing this for. So, well, and I'm jealous, like the house hack, I don't know why that never was something when I, I just never knew anything about that. So that's one thing that I, I regret that I never did. And now with the family and everything, it just doesn't make as much sense in our circumstances to do that. But the house hack is definitely something I'm jealous of that I wish we kind of got involved in that in the first place. Cause I still think that's the best investment ever is if you can, if you can swing it, you know, buying a smaller place, renting out the other side and, and pretty much living for free. So I think that's great. So you talked about, you know, you bought it with your wife. And so how, so how did she get involved? How was she responding? How did your family reacting to, you know, you, hey, you've got this great job at GM. You're working for these agencies in Chicago, supporting some of these global brands. Oh, well, I'm going to go off and do real estate. So what's their reaction? Are they thinking you're crazy or what are they saying to you? You know, the beauty of being the first person to, to go to college and graduate is people tend not to question the stuff you do as much. You know, you, you're, you're already kind of a black sheep, not in a bad way, but just like you're already kind of different from what everyone else is doing. So no one really ever questioned my my decisions. I will tell you this. When I decided to leave GM, my dad absolutely questioned it and he thought I was crazy. And I mean, he came up to see me like that kind of crazy. He came up to Detroit and was like, we need to sit down and talk. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> I was like, what? But, you know, he, he didn't see the vision. He didn't get it. And it's fine. What I'll say is this, you know, my wife, and I think this is really important, you know, you have to have alignment on your goals. And even when we were dating, we, we did a really good job of laying out the kind of future we wanted to create. You know, we, we would sit down, we would budget together. We'd put down like, all right, what's your salary? What's my salary? How much can we save? How much can we afford to pay in rent? If we want to sock away 50% of that, you know, what do we need to do? How much does that leave us to live off of? You know, I was cutting, you know, clipping coupons. Like it was that kind of stuff. You know, I got excited to clip coupons and save 50 cents. It was crazy. Um, You know, my car's paid off, just all that kind of stuff. So she always knew about real estate and I got her, you know, I think I got her interested in real estate, but she honestly was very interested herself. She's a, you know, my wife comes from a, a pretty thrifty, resourceful family where, you know, they are pretty conservative with the way they look at money as well. So for us, it was always about how do we make our income last as as long as we can? How do we invest? And we we would share articles with each other and all that kind of stuff. She was always right there with me, whether it be reading a book or attending an event, um, we would always go to these things together. So for us, buying that first duplex, that was a joint decision. That was an easy thing. We were completely in lockstep. That three unit, it was the same thing. The only pushback she had was, hey, we need to find something that does not need a lot of work because you know, I'm pregnant. And um, the last thing I need is, you know, you running over there trying to do this work on this property while I'm sitting here by myself with this newborn baby. So we bought something that was pretty much turnkey and ready to go. Uh, But we've always been locked up. And I would say, as it went from us building our own personal portfolio to me kind of transitioning full time as an apartment investor and apartment syndicator, that's where we had to kind of reset, you know, reset, what this looks like, what does that mean? Because keep in mind, I'm walking away from a six-figure salary to go full-time and do this. And we had to have a conversation about what that looks like and, you know, what it means to the family and how do we ensure that this is going to be successful over the long haul. And, uh, you know, we had had 
tough conversations, but I would say that she's been beyond supportive. I mean, she's been right there and locked up and she's actually going to push me to say, I think you need to be full-time doing this. And when she said that, I'm like, all right, now that I have not just her blessing, but like now that she's saying, this is what I should do. This is what I should do. Cause I was, I was crushing. I was staying up late till two in the morning, most nights, you know, knocking on my day job stuff and trying to analyze deals, putting in offers. And I used to set up my email so I can write emails at one o'clock in the morning, but they wouldn't send until regular hours. Cause I didn't want to be like the weirdo sending emails <laughs> yeah. at two in the morning. Yeah. So I would do like boomerang is an app that Google has where you can set the time where you want your emails to go out. Cause you know, you don't want to send brokers emails at two o'clock in the morning. Just <laughs> hey, what's this guy doing awake? What's he, what's he got going yeah, yeah, yeah. on? <laughs> well, that, and it's like, clearly you, can't do this during normal business hours. So I'm like, all right. So I'm like, hey, I'll I'll set up all of these emails to go during business hours. Um, but I couldn't analyze deals, you know, during the day. So I had to always analyze it in the evening after my kids went to sleep. So I basically would work from, you know, 8:30 to to 5:30, get up on the train, come home, get my dad time in, and then nine o'clock to like 2 a.m. and then wake up and do it all again the next day. So I mean it, it got to the point where it was pretty draining. Yep. And, um, you know, we just put a plan in place to say, all right, you need to go full time. So let's figure out what that means and, and how quickly we can make that happen. That's awesome. And and I think that's a conversation everybody needs to have, at least in, you know, if they're in the circumstances that, that we are with the spouse and and, and children and, and family. And I think that's something sometimes people gloss over a little bit in regards to what's the impact on everybody. It's great to chase your dream and to chase things, your aspirations. But if it's at the downfall of another aspect of your life, you know, again, kind of back to that whole, what's important to you, you know, it's great to chase that dream. But if you're never seeing your kids, you're traveling all the time, if you're not around to actually live and invest in those relationships, then, you know, is it, is it really worth it? And, and again, every individual has to make that decision on their own. I just think that, you know, before you jump into these and to have such a support system as your wife is tremendous. I mean, I'm so fortunate, the same thing. My wife pushes me constantly and kind of challenges me, you know, we're in the same uh, field, you know, overall in regards to sales and commission-based and things like that. And so, you know, we have a little bit of fun and she's one of the most competitive people that I know. And I think that's helped me become even stronger and better because, I know that she won't, you know, she'll give me, she'll give me a hard time if I'm not putting forth my best effort and if I'm not pushing myself to the the best that I can be. So I just think that support system is so important. So from leaving to now where you're at, I'm always curious, do you feel more fulfilled? Are you happier? You know, is the transition what you expected it to be? What's that process been like? And, And how do you feel now versus before where you felt, you know, maybe you didn't have as much control of your destiny? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, and there are a lot of components to it. And the short answer is yes, I do. I'm I'm very happy. I am fulfilled. I enjoy what I'm doing. I would say that the biggest thing for me, and it, I think this is um, industry specific, but I don't have the anxiety I used to have. You know, I used to in the marketing world, especially when I was working for a smaller agency. Like we didn't have huge budgets, so and we were a smaller shop. We were great, but we were a smaller shop, and I felt like if I messed up a meeting, we could lose the business and people would lose their jobs. And it was a real fear in a a way because, you know, we we might have a retainer that's only a million bucks, but that million dollar retainer might've employed five people, you know, might literally cover their salary overhead or whatever for five people. So if that account went away, those five people are losing their jobs, you know? And I felt the, as the, the lead business person, um, it was my job to understand the business challenge to help make sure our creative solutions solve those business challenges and to build the kind of rapport and relationship with the client where even if we were off, 
they trusted us and empowered us to come back to the table. We didn't get the cracks that other agencies would get. You know, we worked, I worked for uh, an agency that was more focused on multicultural marketing and, and uh, more targeted campaigns, uh, more culture driven campaigns. So they, we didn't have the general market budgets. We didn't have that kind of leniency. It's like, oh, if you didn't perform, it was like, well, we just won't do it. We'll just yep. give the money to this guy. So I did feel like every day we had to perform, every day I had to be on. And my my boss, the CEO, um, he also made sure I felt that pressure because he had that pressure as well. So I think just being in an environment where you don't have someone breathing on your neck like that, and, and great, we have a great relationship, but I think just from that standpoint, to just focus and put your own pressure on, I love pressure. You know, I, I've always been good under pressure, but it's just there's there's real pressure, real anxiety, and then there's like kind of false anxiety that's that that's there. And it's like you get to point like this doesn't really matter. You know, like I don't care that this font color was wrong. You right. know, why am I stressing right. at two in the morning because this person used the wrong color orange? You know, it's like when you when you factor that in, it's like what is wrong with my life that I'm sitting over here mad over a damn font color? And uh, so that anxiety being gone, great. The other thing that's great is the uh, the ability to control my schedule. My son gets off the bus at four o'clock. My workday ends at four o'clock. So he gets off the bus. I, my calendar is blocked. You cannot schedule a meeting for me after four o'clock. I'm done. So I spend that time. I talked about you know how I do my days with them. So that's something that we like to do. Uh, on the flip side, what I will say is, it becomes a bit more lonely though. You know, I don't have the office. I don't have the colleagues that I could just talk to. There's no hanging out the water cooler. There's no, you know, there's no big office to go hang out. So as an entrepreneur, that's the one downside is that you are more insulated in what you do. You certainly talk to, I mean, I talk to people all the time, talking to you, talk to investors, talk to brokers. So I have a lot of conversations, but um, it's not the same kind of environment where you have kind of your work friends. So I don't really have that. So that's the one thing I would say. And then obviously the the income is more ebb and flow. You know, we have months where we crush it. We have huge flows of income and we have some months where it's minimal, right? So that's the other thing going from kind of a, a consistent, you know, uh, paycheck to, you know, the entrepreneur uh, wave of sales is yep. the other thing that's uh, pretty different. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those are, those are, those are great points. So, well, I'm just going to wrap up here with the contrarian three pack. So I know you said you're more of a real estate guy, but if you had to look at your portfolio or investments you've ever made, what's the most contrarian investment you'd say you've ever made? Oh man, I invested in a company that was a clothing, women's clothing business and in Detroit, like a high-end neighborhood in Detroit, but I did in 2008. And uh, selling women's jeans for $300 in Detroit in 2008 ended up not being the best timing. So, All right. Well, they, hey, hey, that's a great one. I'll take that. I'll take that. So, okay. Well, obviously the timing wasn't great. So, uh, you know, contrarian necessar- doesn't necessarily mean it's a windfall. So what's, so what's your favorite activity? You talked a lot about the donuts for dads on Friday, Taco Tuesday. So what's your favorite activity to do with your family? Yeah, you know, for me, it's definitely Taco Tuesday is really good, man. It's, it's simple, but you know, everyone gets excited about it. It's simple. It's dinner. It's just lighthearted and fun, and we know what we're getting. So it's it's my favorite thing. But I would say my family's favorite thing. My wife is Indian, and they love to sing uh, and dance, and they break out the drums and the microphone. I mean, they're serious microphones and everything, right? So I do pujas and all sorts of other uh, like festive and, and uh, spiritual events. So they really love getting together and, and singing as a family. And uh, it goes on for like three or four hours. So they That's really awesome. love to do that. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. And the last one, the wrap up. So I know we talked about fulfillment. So what actions in general do offer you the most fulfillment in life? 
you know, trying to find ways to help others. You know, I think that's the biggest thing, whether it be, you know, consulting from a real estate standpoint, helping newer investors, given that perspective that we kind of talked about, as well as, you know, I sit on the board for an organization called Search for Water. And uh, Search is a great organization that helps invest in underfunded neighborhoods and communities across the globe. So it's really about providing clean, safe drinking water and sanitation uh, solutions and investing in these communities so they can be self-sufficient going forward. So that's something I'm really passionate about just because we, we take these things for granted, right? We have a lot of luxuries uh, as a first world country that we, we take for granted. And by God, if our internet is a little bit slow, we're, we're, we're frustrated, right? But yeah. in some of these countries, they literally have to go get a pail and go, you know, five miles down to a water well, get the water, it may be contaminated, and then walk all the way back. And kids miss school. They miss going to school because they have to go fetch water for their family. So um, it's something that just is, it's kind of crazy to me that this is still happening in, in many parts of the world. But this organization invests in it. One of my wife's friends actually founded the organization. And I remember her telling me she was leaving her consulting job, her well-paying consulting job yep. to go do this for free. And it just went back to the priority conversation, right? Um, what's our real purpose on this planet? What do we want to do? What do we want to be known for? A job is a job, but to to make a real impact on other people in their lives, that's really what legacy is about. So anytime we have a chance to to make an impact with an organization like that, or even work with other people, I think that's the best way to give back. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to have you share the the contact information for that group in the show notes as well, so that we can get that out there to the listeners. So, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, John. I, re- I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it about your journey of where you've gotten to where you are now, and and really the mindset that you've had to adopt throughout the process. And and I think the big thing that resonated with me was just your hunger. You know, I, I don't want to get between you and and, and what the goal that you have in front of you because I think that's just tremendous. So, uh, lastly, you know, how can the listeners get a, get a hold of you out there in either socials or, or your website? What uh, what's the best way for folks? get in touch. Yeah, I'm on most social media platforms. John Kasman is the name on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I will tell you on Facebook, there's another John Kasman who's a little bit older. Uh, not as good looking. Father. Yeah. He will not He will not be able to help you with anything <laughs> in regards to real estate. So I will let you know that right now. Make sure you see my face. But the best way is we honestly have a, a sample deal package on our website. The best thing is if you download that sample deal, you'll get a sense of the way we structure deals, what they look like. Um, and then if you are interested in being a passive investor, obviously you'll get a sense of you know, what you could expect. And then if you're interested in being active as well, it's a great way to see, you know, get some ideas of how to maybe structure a deal that you may be working on. Um, you'll get on our email list. We'll send you updates of what we're working on, some other marketing tips as well to help you be a better marketer and track capital for your deals or attract more deals for your business. So go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal to access that uh, sample deal package. Sounds good. Well, I know a bunch of folks are going to be visiting that, checking it out. So, well, thanks again, John. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, yeah, keep doing the good work out there with marketing and and obviously helping with the, the world as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Take care. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.